Welcome to Profiles from WFIU. I'm Aaron Kane. On Profiles, we talk to notable artists, scholars, and public figures to get to know the stories behind their work. Our guest today is Yasha Munk. He lectures on political theory at Harvard University and is a prominent voice in the current discussion of democracies around the world. Born in Germany to Polish parents, Yasha Munk received his B.A. in history from Trinity College, Cambridge, and his Ph.D. in government from Harvard. A lot of his recent work has focused on the rise of populism, and it paints a picture of a world where liberal democracy is in crisis. Munk has written three books. His latest is called The People vs. Democracy, Why Our Freedom is in Danger and How to Save It. Yasha Munk is also becoming a regular media presence. He writes a weekly column at Slate and hosts its podcast called The Good Fight. He's been published in the New York Times and the Wall Street Journal, and he makes frequent appearances on CNN and NPR. Recently, Yasha Munk made an appearance on the IU Bloomington campus to speak at the third annual America's Role in the World conference and in the WFIU studios, where he spoke with Janae Cummings. Yasha, I want to start this conversation by defining a couple of words, and they're words we hear all the time. They're words that are at the core of your work as a political scientist, and they're the words that most people may not realize they don't fully understand, and they are liberalism and democracy. Yeah. Let's talk about liberalism first. And when most people hear that word, they think of political leanings. Right. And it is much more than that. Yeah. So, you know, there's a sense in which liberal means you're on the left, you're a Democrat rather than a Republican, right? That's not the way in which I'm going to be talking about liberal today, right? There's a long tradition of liberalism as a philosophical tradition and as a part of what it means to live in a free country. And that's the way that I'm going to be talking about it. So in my sense, you know, George W. Bush is as much of a liberal as Barack Obama is, right? Put that out of your mind. What do we mean? Well, one of the core aspirations of our political system is that we get to decide how we live our lives as individuals, that nobody gets to tell us what to say, what not to say, how to worship and how not to worship, who to be in a relationship with or not to be in a relationship with. And that means that we have to have individual rights, that we can claim against the government, even against the majority of our fellow citizens. And to preserve that, we also need things like the separation of powers and the rule of law, so that one mayor, one governor, one president can't say, hey, I don't like you, you annoyed me, so I'm going to throw you in jail. Or, you know what, I don't like your political views, I'm going to shut you up. So that's the sense in which I'm going to be talking about liberal today. And what about democracy? So democracy, you know, often takes on this more and more confused meaning because everything we like, we say is democracy. And everything we don't like, we say, well, that's undemocratic. But once you've sort of set out what liberalism means a little separately, I think we can be much more straightforward about what democracy is. Literally, in the ancient Greek, it means the rule of a demos, the rule of a people. And I think today we can say, well, part of democracy is the aspiration to collective self-rule, that we govern ourselves together, but we decide what happens. And so for a country to be democratic, it needs to at least be able to translate popular views into public policies. The political system needs to be responsive to what we as citizens want. And I think what's special about our political system is precisely these two things, in theory at least, going together. That we both get to rule ourselves collectively and that at the same time we as individuals get to lead the lives that we want to lead, get to make decisions about how we lead our own lives. And my fear is that these two things aren't going together as straightforwardly anymore as they once did. 
you refer to that as an illiberal democracy. So I think there's two kinds of ways in which that political system can come apart. The first is what I would call sort of rights without democracy or undemocratic liberalism, which we've had, I think, in certain ways for a long time. Mm -hmm. That's a political system in which, with some obvious limitations, individual minority rights are respected. There is the rule of law. There is a separation of powers. But we're doing a pretty bad job of actually listening to what people want. Because, for example, the role of money in politics is huge. Because you have this revolving door between lobbies and legislators. And also because you have more and more decisions being taken by independent institutions, whether it's the Supreme Court, whether it's central banks, whether it's bureaucratic agencies like the Environmental Protection Agency, whether it's trade treaties, whether it's international organizations. So we take all of those things together and the system hasn't been very responsive to people. Now, in part as a result, you get a sort of rebellion against that, where people are saying, hey, you know what, we need to abolish all of these things. We need somebody who really speaks for what the people really want, whom you can put in power, and he's just going to take care of things. And that, I think, runs the danger of creating the opposite system, democracy without rights, illiberal democracy, in which, yeah, actually often the government, not always, but often the government is pretty popular, often it does actually push through views that have a lot of public support, but it also starts to infringe on the rights of individuals and especially of minorities in very strong ways. And it concentrates so much power in its own hands that it starts to abolish the rule of law, the separation of powers. And when we talk about those leaders who kind of sweep in and talk about taking care of everything, those really populist movements, right? Far-right populist movements, it seems, have been making strides, particularly in Europe for the last, I don't know, decade or more. But things have really come to head, I think, worldwide in the last couple of years, 2016 with Brexit, with the election of Donald Trump. And you referred to that as a watershed year. Are we seeing, perhaps with these movements, are we seeing an end of liberal democracy around the world? I don't think we're seeing the end of liberal democracy. I think what we are seeing is the end of a period in which we could make a certain number of basic assumptions about what our political future would look like. For a long time, we thought that Yes, poor democracy sometimes died. Yes, some authoritarian governments had a lot of longevity. They survived even once the citizens were more affluent, more educated. But in countries like the United States, in countries like France and Sweden and Italy, which were relatively affluent and which had had democratic governance for a long time, we knew what the future held. Not in every detail. Some big debate. Should we have same-sex marriage? That was not at all clear a few years ago. But yeah, we knew that 10, 20, 40 years from now, we would live in a democratic republic in the United States. That's obvious. Well, I think the reasons we had for believing that are really being undermined by political developments right now. We see that a lot of citizens are very critical of their democracies, but they're shockingly open to authoritarian alternatives to democracies. And most importantly, that there are politicians and political movements but really don't accept the basic rules of the democratic game. Why is that? Is it because democracy is no longer delivering for them in the way that it was? That's a big part of the reason, I think. So take the United States. From 1945 to 1960, the living standard of the average American doubled. From 1960 to 1985, it doubled again. Since 1985, it's essentially been flat. It's essentially been stagnant. That really changes how people think about politics. We used to say, hey, I'm twice as rich as my parents were. My kids are going to be twice as rich as me. Do I love 
politicians? Do I think that Washington DC is the paragon of moral virtue? Do I trust them completely? No. But you know what? They're delivering for me. Life's getting better. Let's give them the benefit of a doubt. Something seems to be working. They seem to be sticking to their end of a deal. Well, now people are saying, you know what? I've worked hard all my life. I'm not doing much better than my parents did. My kids might do worse than me. Let's try something new. How bad could things get? That set of economic reasons, there's been a big debate about that for the past couple of years. And some people say, no, it doesn't seem to have anything to do with the economy because it's not true that poor people necessarily voted for Donald Trump or rich people necessarily voted for Hillary Clinton. That's true. But there's a very strong geographic pattern to populist support. Donald Trump won over two-thirds of American counties, but he only won a little over one-third of America's GDP. Mm. He did really well in parts of a country where there's been less recent economic investment, where there's fewer highly qualified people, where the share of jobs that might be automated away in the coming decades is much higher. So in the nation, Donald Trump did especially well in more rural areas, in states that are less affluent. And even within those states, you see a very clear pattern. I haven't looked at the data, but I bet that in Indiana, Hillary Clinton probably won in Indianapolis. Mm -hmm. She definitely won in Bloomington. Mm -hmm. But you probably drive 20, 30 miles away from Bloomington. Ten. And that's probably a place where Donald Trump won. Yeah. And you see that all across the United States. You see that also in countries like Hungary, Germany, Sweden, India, Turkey. It's a very consistent pattern. Skipping ahead a bit to the Trump election, and we're talking about a lot of people blaming economic anxiety, perhaps, mm -hmm. for his win over Hillary Clinton. And they also blame racism. Mm -hmm. You say that it's both. Can you explain that? Yeah, I think... You know, most of the interesting things we try to explain in the world aren't what social scientists call monocausal. They don't just have one cause. Now, in our daily lives, we understand that. If somebody falls in love with you, it's probably not because of one only thing. If somebody leaves you, it's probably not because you just did one thing wrong, right? right. It's a set of causes. Yeah. Well, in this case, it's particularly the case because it's not just two independent causes. It's two things that go together. Look, when people are doing really well, and they see somebody who's not like them, who doesn't come from their community, who's perhaps an immigrant, also doing well. They say, hey, you know what? I'm doing well. That guy's doing well. Good for him. If they feel like I'm not getting, you know, what I was promised, and I'm really frustrated with where I'm in life, why is that guy over there doing well? Mm -hmm. Right? Now, what's the nature of this cultural backlash, which is how I would put it, against the idea of an equal multi-ethnic society? Well, it helps to remember that most democracies in the world were founded on this sort of mono-ethnic, mono-cultural conception of themselves. When you go back to Germany, to Italy, to Sweden in 1960, most of the people there said, well, I know who's a true German, who's a true Swede. It's somebody who descends from the same set of people. And somebody who's brown or black, somebody who's Hindu or Muslim or for that matter Jewish, they're not real members of my nation. Right, right. Now, look, we've had a lot of immigration over the last 50 years. Thankfully, that set of ideas has started to change. We've had legal changes, which make it actually possible for immigrants to become citizens in those countries, which was often not the case until a few decades ago. We've had a set of cultural changes where there's a broad coalition of people saying, yes, of course, immigrants, the children of immigrants, the grandchildren of immigrants, they belong in our country. They can be just as German, just as Swedish. There's also a lot of people who rebel against that. And for I don't condone that, it shouldn't surprise us. 
think about somebody who's not the richest guy in the country, not the smartest guy in the country, not the best educated guy in the country, perhaps doesn't get the most social respect. It's really tempting to say, well, at least I'm Italian yeah. rather than, you know, Turkish. At least I'm part of the majority and I have a higher status than that immigrant over there. Well, suddenly that immigrant might be a boss. Suddenly that immigrant might be the politician who's supposed to represent you. And that takes something away from you. It takes away your sense that, well, I get to be somehow more important than them. It's right. It's just that be taking away. That's an unfair good that mm -hmm. you had. But it shouldn't surprise us that people are rebelling against that. Now, when you look at the United States and Canada, for that matter, it's both similar and different. The difference is that these have always obviously been multi-ethnic societies. The similarity is that they've been multi-ethnic societies with a very strict racial hierarchy yeah. in which one group had a lot of unjust advantages over others. Again, we've come a long way in overcoming this, and we should celebrate that. I think it's pretty clear, perhaps not that being a member of an ethnic or religious or sexual minority is better today than two years ago, but certainly better than 20 or 40 or 60 years ago. For sure. And we should celebrate that. We should remember that we've made that progress when we're being a little fatalistic sometimes. But it shouldn't surprise us that the people who had all of those advantages, who had all of those privileges, might be angry that they're being taken away. And is that then how populism rises? How do we get, for lack of a better word, strongman leaders like Trump, like Putin, like President Xi Jinping in China? How does the populace fall for that rhetoric? Politics is complicated. It's complicated to keep offering your citizens a, a sizable, noticeable improvement to your living standards generation after generation. It's hard to build an equal multi-ethnic society, mm -hmm. right? Well, populists like politics to be simple. They don't say it's hard. They say it's really straightforward. You know why you don't see an improvement in your pocketbooks? You know why these people you don't like are coming in? It's because politicians are traitors. They don't really care about, quote unquote, people like you and me. They just want to line their pocketbooks and they're actually on the side of these people you dislike. So how are we going to fix this? We're going to fix it by finding somebody who's able to express the views and the preferences of ordinary people, find common sense solutions that are going to fix everything. And I, the populist, have a unique ability to do that. I am your voice, Donald Trump said at the Republican National Convention mm -hmm. in 2016. So trust me, I'll fix it. Vote for me. Now, once they're in office, they find that perhaps a little bit more complicated. Who knew that healthcare could be so complicated? But they don't want to admit that they made false promises, mm -hmm. that they said things were too simple. So they start to blame. They start to blame the media for criticizing them. That's all fake news and... They have to be regulated and curbed. They blame the political opposition for doing their jobs, for scrutinizing legislation. They're traitors. And they blame independent institutions, from courts to institutions like the FBI and the Department of Justice, because they're traitors of the American people, they're enemies of the American people. And that's the dangerous mechanism by which you go from real frustration that has some good reasons to a very dangerous political movement that attacks liberal democracy that attacks our ability to sustain the separation of powers and the rule of law and the rights of individuals and minorities. I'm curious if we're talking about populists generally, if this is the strategy, if this is what you run on, 
I'm here as a voice for you and me. And by you and me, you look like me, you live like me, like that kind of thing. And we identify in the same way. We're not here for anyone else. And then they get into office. There are campaign promises that are not upheld, probably because they're unrealistic and cannot be upheld. Mm. And then they start attacking those institutions that form the foundation of our democracies. Is that the strategy? Do you think that is what some of our political leaders are going for when they enter office? Yeah. So by now there is, I would say, an illiberal international. There are people in different countries who have the same desire to undermine institutions like the separation of power and the rule of law. And they have build what I would call a populist playbook that is relatively easy to emulate as a Mm -hmm. set of strategies. Now, some of the core ideas there beyond the stuff that I've been talking about, which unites populists who are otherwise pretty dissimilar from, yes, Donald Trump to Recep Erdogan in Turkey to Viktor Orban in Hungary to Marine Le Pen in France. What they do once they take office is three things. They reward their biggest supporters in a straightforward material way. So the Polish government, for example, has started to pay 500 zloty every month to any Polish family with two children. That shows up in your bank account, you know, courtesy of a government. That's a very effective strategy, Uh improving people's lives, and they see it every month. That's one strategy that a lot of them use. The second strategy is to paint your country as being really under attack in a fundamental way from the political opposition from outsiders, from foreign nations. So that standing with the populist leader is not a matter of political preference, it's a matter of patriotism and of defending yourself. And thirdly, they start to undermine in a very strategic way the independence of institutions, saying, Mm -hmm. you know what, the judiciary is inefficient, we really need to reform it. You know what, the media has too many lies, we really need to regulate it in a way that claims to be nonpartisan. Now, here's the piece of good news. I think Donald Trump has all of those instincts. But if there was populist Olympiad, I think he wouldn't make medal rank. Why is that? Because he isn't very strategic. He's not playing three-dimensional chess. He's playing zero-dimensional chess. He is absolutely trying to say, I'm under attack. That's why you have to stand with me in the Miller probe, for example. But he's not managing to make it about the country. He is attacking the independence of institutions like the FBI and the Department of Justice without a doubt, but it is always reactive when he feels like they are threatening him directly. For legitimate reasons, they are going about the job, Mm -hmm. but it's not in the sort of broader, more proactive, strategic way. That's why I was chilled when in the State of the Union he suggested that any cabinet minister should be allowed to fire civil servants at will if they perceive them to somehow not be working in the interest of the American people. That would be a strategic attack, but he hasn't actually focused on that because perhaps he's too distracted by various interviews that are given on 60 Minutes. <laughs> and thirdly, he has completely failed to actually deliver for his base so far. The tax reform hasn't actually delivered for the set of swing voters who really helped him win in 2016. And so I'm very concerned about his willingness to attack American institutions. I'm very concerned, frankly, about the way in which even though he has been a rather chaotic president, He has managed to consolidate power in a quite scary way over, for example, congressional Republicans, in which he has started to undermine the independence of institutions like the FBI. But I think he would have been much, much more effective and we would be in much more danger now if he had followed the populist playbook laid out by people like Viktor Orban more effectively. Do you think that's more because he perhaps didn't know about that playbook? I think it's because he's not that good a politician. He's Mm -hmm. a great campaigner. Mm -hmm. Governing is hard. It 
takes a lot of discipline. It takes a lot of message control. It takes a lot of setting of priorities. It takes a lot of sticking with something. And that's, by the way, not something that he was particularly known for as a businessman and it's not something that he has done as a president. Now, I'm a little torn about this. On the one hand, I think it's a stroke of luck. One great thing about Donald Trump is that he's not very effective at carrying out that kind of populist program. Otherwise, I think our political institutions would be in acute danger. Of course, it's also dangerous if a real external political crisis arises because then you want a political leader who's able to manage it. Yasha Munk, author of The People vs. Democracy, Why Our Freedom is in Danger and How to Save It. He's speaking with Janae Cummings. You're listening to Profiles from WFIU. Our checks and balances are in place, not just to protect us from the tyranny of our executive branch, but also the tyranny of the mob, I think. And we are seeing, it it appears, widespread support for attack on these institutions. How do we come back from that? What do we do to combat that? Yeah, it's an important question. I mean, look, it's astounding in many ways that, you know, the president has managed to turn a majority of Republicans and a large number of Americans against the FBI and against the NFL. Mm -hmm. I mean, that is a real political feat. Yeah, It's not easy to do, but it shows you the power of partisanship. There's still some institutions that have respect right now because they haven't been politicized. Not many of those either. The army is one of them. But what's quite clear is that there is no longer a political institution in the United States that will retain bipartisan support if it is attacked by the president. And that's very scary. That should scare anybody. That Mm -hmm. should scare people who are conservative, who are on the right of a political spectrum, and who are worried about what a democratic president may be able to get away with in the future. That should concern us irrespective of our partisan ideology. So what can we do about that? Well, I think there is a hopeful story. And that's that often countries have come together the most in the bleakest moments or after the bleakest moments. Think of Europe and Germany after World War II. Think of Rwanda after the genocide. Mm -hmm. Think for that matter of the brief but very inspiring moment of reconstruction in the United States after the Civil War. So I think that if we manage to repudiate this kind of politics and reaffirm our commitment to institutions that should have nonpartisan support, that would make me more optimistic. And there's a chance to do that once the current moment, political moment passes. My fear is that the better historical model to look at is the late Roman Republic, in which there's a lot of reasons to be frustrated. There's a lot of economic stagnation. A sort of people's tribune rose up, Tiberius Gracchus in the late second century before Christ. There's a moment of real constitutional crisis as he and his supporters battled the political establishment. He was sort of thrown out of politics. Things went back to seemingly calm for about 10 years when his brother got elected. You got another moment of political chaos. He too eventually was thrown out of politics in a violent way. Things went back to normal for a little bit, but the underlying problems weren't solved. And through this back and forth, back and forth of these challenges and this brief return to normality, you eventually got the collapse of a Roman Republic. And my fear is not that when the history books are written, the man who killed the American Republic was Donald Trump. 
but it is that somebody who works, who is more effective, who does deserve to get a medal at the Populist Olympics, succeeds him four years, eight years, 12 years, 20 years from now, and is able to implement that playbook more effectively than he is. Let's say midterm elections turn things around a bit and things seem calm in the 2020 presidential election with no matter who is elected, a Republican, Democrat, otherwise, we are still on tenuous ground is what you're saying. Yeah, absolutely. So uh, look, there's a fascinating political development recently in Peru, which had a populist leader who committed giant human rights violations, was massively corrupt. All of this was definitively proven. His name was Fujimori. And he went to jail. And he was ousted from Peruvian politics for a long time. Well, a few months ago, he had managed to build such a following even while he was in prison that his political allies held a lot of power in parliament Mm -hmm. and essentially forced the president to pardon him. And he is now a dominating force in Peruvian politics again. Think of the elections in Italy recently. Italy is a country which had been ruled for two decades very poorly with a terrible economic record by a billionaire real estate magnate with a series of sex scandals and persistent trouble over law. We're speaking of Berlusconi. We're speaking of Silvio Berlusconi, but we might be speaking of somebody else. <laughs> and in 2011, people finally got sick of him. He was very unpopular. When rumors that he might resign started to swirl around on social media, thousands of people in Rome came out to celebrate. This hastily assembled amateur orchestra came together to play Handel's Hallelujah. Well, seven years later, Silvio Berlusconi is back in the Italian parliament, essentially the kingmaker in the country's politics, and two different populist parties. One of them, at least, is quite hostile to Berlusconi, but they have a very similar vision of politics. They have a similar unwillingness to accept the opposition as legitimate, are now even more powerful than him. Between them, these populist parties have nearly two-thirds of the vote in Italy. So, Yes, there's an acute danger right now, and it's very important to resist attacks on the independence of institutions like the FBI and the Department of Justice. And yes, personally, I believe that one of the best ways of doing that is for the opposition to retake control of at least one House of Congress. It is, in my opinion, to get rid of somebody as president of this country who doesn't have respect for the most basic rules and norms of our political system. But even if all of that succeeds, the danger will not have passed. In thinking about populist leaders, um, the United States has had at least one populist president, Andrew Jackson, I think, possibly another in Theodore Roosevelt. Despite Andrew Jackson's crimes against indigenous populations, we regard them as two of our greatest presidents. There's a disconnect there, I think. What is the difference in their leadership style? Or maybe they're just governing at a different time where we think that these are great presidents. We have a populist president now, and Hmm. we certainly don't think this is the case. Well, many people do not think this is the case, rather. (laughs) That's a great question. I mean, I think part of it is, frankly, that we underestimate the threat that those presidents did pose to democracy at the time. Mm -hmm. I think there's an alternative scenario in which somebody like Andrew Jackson does damage America's democratic institutions in such a way as to to end it. Mm -hmm. And then I think we would remember him quite differently. Another thing is that, you know, it's easy to forget how heinous some of those violations of rights were in retrospect, right? I mean, I don't regard Andrew Jackson as a great president because of his crimes. Right. Now, you know, it's a funny thing that if you hear about, you know, uh, an earthquake that kills 50 people today, you're very sad. If you read about an earthquake that killed 50 people 150 years ago, 
it doesn't really matter. You mm-hmm. don't get sad by it. We're also 50 people, right? right? But I think that has a lot to do with it. It's easy with people who ruled 150, 200 years ago to say, well, yeah, I mean, he had all these crimes against you know Native Americans, but we don't process that in the same way that but we look would. Look at this list of today. other things. That, yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Many would argue, I think in the words of Whitney Houston, that the children are the future. Over time, I hope they'll... you're going to play a clip of that. For perhaps I, I royalties so. are too expensive. <laughs> I don't know. Uh... Whitney deserves it. Um, that uh, the youth, that younger people will help the country right any of these supposed wrongs uh, through movements and, and voting. But in your book, The People versus Democracy, you have a section titled The Youth Won't Save Us. What do you mean by that? Well, a few things. I mean, first of all, you know, there's always been the idea that youth will save us. I mean, you go back for the last 50 years of American history and it is always oh, the youth are so much more tolerant than older people and for people who stand on the political left, oh, it's great, we're all more left-wing than, you know, so Democrats are going to have a perpetual majority. Mm-hmm. Well, somehow we've always thought that was just about to happen and somehow that never happened, right? So that's just one important historical point. But beyond that, uh, we see that young people are actually very deeply disenchanted with the democratic systems. Look, in the United States, over two-thirds of older Americans born in, in the 1930s, 1940s, say that, it's absolutely essential to live in a democracy. Among younger people born since 1980, less than one third do. And you see similar trends in lots of European countries as well. Now, obviously the main base for Donald Trump has been older voters, but I think that's because he wasn't trying to appeal to younger voters who are much more demographically diverse and who perhaps didn't want to vote for a septuagenarian who had a conception of a world even beyond sort of issues of race and so on that didn't seem particularly of the political moment. Now, in countries in which you have had populists try to appeal to young voters, they have done very well. In France, over half of young people voted either for the far-right populist party of Marine Le Pen or for the far-left populist party of Jean-Luc Mélenchon in the first round of the presidential elections last year. In Italy support for the far-right Northern League, for the five-star movement, was much higher among young people than it was among older people. So we can't just look at this one election in one country and say, oh, the young people are immune to that kind of challenge democracy. Mm -hmm. And by the way, there's some good reasons for that. Economic policy for a long time has been set mostly in the interests of older people because they come out to vote more and so on and so forth. Pension entitlements are reasonably generous, but young people often pay the price for that. And so in many countries, young people have fallen way behind the material affluence of older people. In the United States, it used to be the case that nine out of 10 young people earned more than their parents had at the age of 30. So once you were 30, you had a 90% likelihood that you were earning more than your parents did when they were as old as you were. Now it's one in two. So over half of Americans say, you know what, I'm actually doing worse than my parents mm-hmm. did. Well, no wonder that they are also more critical of a democratic system. Does it matter perhaps that they have no frame of reference for what life could be in any other system? And therefore they think it's just not that bad? It's a big part of the reason. Look, if you're older, you may have fought against fascism. Mm -hmm. You certainly understood what it meant to have to fight the Soviet Union or contain the Soviet Union and what life was like in the Soviet Union. You probably saw movies and newspaper articles and so on about that. You know, today I don't think people have a life imagination of how bad life is in some other countries. And so all they do is to see the flaws of our political system. Now look, there's lots of flaws. 
There's lots of injustices in our country. There's lots of things to be angry about. And that's healthy. But we must, at the same time, we can keep in mind both that there's deep injustices in our country and that it is much better to live in America today and it's much better to live in a liberal democracy than it is to live in Iran or in Russia or in Turkey or in China. And I think that people are losing that important point out of sight and we're partially losing it out of sight because we don't do nearly enough to teach civics. In colleges and universities, we don't do nearly enough to explain the values of liberal democracy. And this is something that our founding fathers rightly exhorted us to do. They understood how difficult and how important it is to transmit our political values from one generation to the next. And that the stability of a democratic republic will always depend on that. We paid lip service to that over the last decades, but we haven't taken it seriously. What is very important that we start taking it seriously now. You're listening to Profiles from WFIU. Our guest is scholar and author Yasha Munk. He was recently in Bloomington to speak at the third annual America's Role in the World Conference at the School of Global and International Studies. He's speaking with Janae Cummings. In the last year in the United States, we've experienced, I think, a swell of activism, much of it led by younger people. I and mean, we've seen it with Black Lives Matter and the recent March for Our Lives movement. We saw it uh, seven or eight years ago in the Arab Spring. Young people led the civil rights movement in the 60s. They led the AIDS activism in the 80s mm-hmm. and 90s. Are we perhaps coming upon another once-in-a-generation movement or motivation that will have a lasting impact that could change things? I mean, I hope so. And one of the hopeful signs, by the way, is that there are some indications that young people may be recommitting to democracy because they see the threat that it's under. So young people actually, according to some new data by some great political scientists, Lee Drutman, uh, Larry Diamond, and Joe Goldman, are less likely to support a strong leader who doesn't have to bother with Congress or elections than older voters were. And that is, I think, because... Donald Trump's not very popular among young Americans, and they associate Trump with the idea of a sort of strongman leader. Mm -hmm. So there are some good signs there, and there's certainly a lot of idealism among young people who have the time and the energy to go and fight for important causes. But as you're pointing out, there have been moments of that in the past as well, and they have brought about some very important changes, but they haven't created paradise. And so I think, you know, the March for Our Lives movement is incredibly important. It was inspiring. It hasn't yet had legislative effects. And it bears a danger, which is that the young people who organized it and who went to those marches are going to become even more cynical about democracy mm-hmm. if they did all of this amazing work and nothing happens. How is it in a country of liberal democracy where nothing happens? It seems that we always have this idealism that our politicians are going to listen to us, that if there is a groundswell of public opinion one way or another, they will act and they Mm. do not act. How do we get around that? I'm not sure how we come back from that. It seems to be the consistent pattern anymore. It's hard. Um, Look, I mean, it has some reasons that we can fix. It's hard to fix them, but we can in principle fix them. And that is the role of money in politics, for example. Mm. Look, congressmen now, it's a little difficult to get reliable data on it, but according to some estimates, we spend about 50% of our time just dialing donors for cash. Spend 50% of our time, picture this, in a room. They're not allowed to do it in the Senate building, so they have to go across the street 
whether DNC and VRNC, this is the same across parties, has hired out these sort of drab-looking office buildings with lots of cubicles. And they sit there, dialing numbers off the list, asking people for donations. 50% of their time is spent this way. You add to that the time they spend going to fundraisers mm -hmm. and so on. Look, by the time that a bill comes up for a vote, I think there's this sort of idea that a lot of people have that there's this congressman who either is just completely cynical anyway, or he's sort of a good guy, but he's sitting there and he has to vote on this law and he says, well, if I vote for this, I'm going to get campaign contributions. And if I don't, I won't. So even though I think it's bad to vote for it, I'm going to do it because I'm immoral, right? That's not how life works. Once you spend 50% of your time talking to donors, once you go to all of those fundraisers, you get their concerns. You understand what their interests are. And you've lost touch with your constituents who have opposing interests. Mm -hmm. You don't understand the case as vividly. So by the time you're voting on that bill, you don't have to be deeply cynical. You don't have to know that you're doing something that's bad or immoral. You've just become acclimatized to a political world, which is obvious that the most important thing is cutting taxes rather than making sure that people who are unemployed have a chance to be reintegrated into the labor market. Now, we can do stuff about that. We can change campaign, the, the system of um, electoral funding. We can increase the capacity of Congress so that people can actually retain the talented staffers rather than see them leave for lobbyists because mm -hmm. they can barely pay them a living wage. And if they go across to K Street, they triple or quadruple the salary. There's a whole bunch of reforms that we can make. The trouble is getting them through a system that's dysfunctional. So in the end, marches, rallies, protests, in the end it matters that you simply vote. Well, voting is really important. It's also really important to get engaged in order to push political parties to actually take these problems seriously. So, yeah, I think it's incredibly important to get politically engaged in a formal political process. And, yes, in countries in which authoritarian populists are in power, it's incredibly important to get them out of power. You know, this is a recent enough movement that there isn't great reliable data on that. But what I'm observing is that once an authoritarian populist is in power for four or five years, they're up for re-election for the first time, it's hard for the opposition to oust them because already they've undermined the independence of certain institutions. The media landscape has started to change. But the opposition usually retains a real chance of ousting them. By the time that they've been re-elected once or twice, as is the case with Viktor Orban in Hungary, they have captured public media so much. They have undermined the independence of private media so much. They have started to dominate formerly independent institutions like electoral commissions and courts so much that the opposition no longer has a real chance at voting them out. With this in mind, how much danger is liberal democracy in the United States? How much danger is it in? There's still some amount of risk that Donald Trump will actually manage to undermine our institutions in an acutely dangerous way. It doesn't feel to me like he is, but he's succeeding at it. But when you look at what observers both inside and outside the country were writing about Recep Erdogan in Turkey, or for that matter about Vladimir Putin in Russia a couple of years after they took office, the extent to which they would undermine their democratic institutions was not widely recognized. Mm -hmm. Newspapers like the New York Times were saying, Recep Erdogan is bringing a sort of Muslim form of Christian democracy to the country and that's actually going to strengthen democratic institutions there. Well, that turned out to be wrong. So I want to be careful about this. I think there's some danger that remains. 
we should take it seriously. But precisely because I don't think that Trump is a very effective member of the liberal international, mm -hmm. I'm hopeful. Now, I also am ultimately not that bullish on the idea that we all come together in a big kumbaya moment after 2018 or after 2020. I think there's clearly a large portion of the American population that does have a very strong partisan attachment to Donald Trump that's going to survive that moment. And even if they don't, I think they might say, oh, you know what, so Donald Trump has turned out to be a fraud. He turned out not really to care about people like me. But I still hate the other side of the political spectrum. And I still think it's more important that we win than that we reestablish our political institutions. And I'm just going to put my hope in the next guy who's a little bit like that. So I think the danger is long term. I think the danger is that we're not going to solve the problems that are driving the frustration and driving this partisan division. And in 20 or 30 years, we have no institutions left that we all trust. What is the ripple effect for this around the world? Well, the ripple effect is already huge. It's not like the United States has always consistently advanced the cause of democracy in the world. The world is complicated, and sometimes the United States has been willing to ally itself with dictators, help them stay in power, and often for bad reasons, often in ways that I think we should look back on and be ashamed of. But when the United States had a choice of a clearly democratic leader, they were always willing to support him. There was no doubt, and it's not a partisan thing, whether the president was a Democrat or a Republican, that the United States had a preference for democratic leaders in Europe and, yes, also in Latin America. That's no longer the case. Mm -hmm. When you look at the utterances of our president at the moment, he seems to be more enamored with a dangerous and violent fuck like Rodrigo Duterte in the Philippines than for a democratic leader like Angela Merkel in Germany. And the way in which this allows political leaders in, in a whole set of countries, from Hungary to the Philippines, to go through with attacks on democratic institutions without any pushback from the United States, with support in some cases from the United States, is, is truly worrying. Speaking of Angela Merkel, it is incredibly bizarre that Germany can be one of the last real defenders of Western liberal democracy, given where Germany was just 80 years ago. How did we get there? So, I mean, I think part of it is, of course, that Germany has gone through a reasonably serious process of reckoning with its past. Mm -hmm. Now, I don't think that process is nearly as straightforward and clean as some sure. people outside the country might think, sure. but I think that has made a big contribution. By the way, we got there in part through American help and generosity. The United States has helped to stabilize Europe through the Marshall Plan. It helped to set political conditions for democracy to take hold there after 1945. But European political leaders aren't courageous enough in the defense of democracy either. Mm -hmm. They have a preference for democratic leaders, but they are not nearly proud enough to stand up for those values. I'll give you a couple of examples from Germany recently. One came at the Munich Security Conference in which a Turkish origin German, born and raised politician, Cem Özdemir, who is very critical, rightly, of President Erdogan of Turkey, was threatened by Turkish bodyguards who were at the conference to mm -hmm. protect their prime minister and basically told, hey, we think you're a Turk, we think you're a traitor to our country, and we're going to beat you up, essentially. Well, instead of putting these people in jail for threatening a German politician, or at least asking them to leave the country, 
or at least putting up enough protection for this German politician so that he could go about his business at the conference, they asked him that he couldn't have breakfast in his own hotel on German ground because they couldn't make sure that he would be safe. Think of a bigger example. This is a sort of small example. It's very telling. You know, who cares if he gets to have breakfast in a hotel? But it's very telling. There's an even bigger example. Viktor Orban, a man I've mentioned a couple of times, mm-hmm. is really destroying democracy in Hungary. The elections in Hungary this year are not free and fair. And yet, at the time that we record this, Angela Merkel has not called him out on it. Angela Merkel remains allied with his political party, Fidesz, in the European Parliament. She has not spoken out against the extreme anti-Semitism that Orban's party and that he himself have perpetrated in the electoral campaign there. So, yes, there's a huge distinction between somebody like Donald Trump who actually seems to prefer people like Orban and Duterte over people like Angela Merkel, but democratic political leaders also have to find, finally, the courage of their convictions. Let's switch gears a bit to nationalism. You have argued that nationalism, which one often associates with racism and bigotry, particularly here in the United States, it can be a good thing. You've called it a half-wild beast worthy of domestication. Mm -hmm. Can you tell us about that? So look, there's no doubt that nationalism can be very dangerous and very violent and very exclusionary. And so the temptation is to say, let's leave it behind in the 20th century, which it so cruelly shaped. And I get the temptation. I felt it for a long time growing up. But I think it is wrong to do that for two reasons. The first is that nationalism is also a great font of solidarity. That the easiest person to care about is your family, is perhaps your town, is people who look like you, is people who have the same religion. And there's a great value if as Americans we can say, you know what, there is a big flood in Houston that's really destructive, even though I might live in a different corner of the country. I care about those people. I want to come and help them because... They're American like me. Mm-hmm. Or for that matter, if the same happens in Puerto Rico. And those people might not look like the majority of Americans look, but they're also American. And we should also come to the rescue. So I think there is a really inspiring part that nationalism can have there. The other thing is simply, and that's sort of the idea of this image of a half-domesticated animal, that it's not going away. Right. But if you leave it on its own, the worst kinds of people are going to come and stoke and bait the beast until it runs wild. So I think it's very dangerous to allow people, let's say like Steve Bannon, to own what it is to be a nationalist or a patriot. Because people feel patriotic. And if they think the only way to be patriotic is to be patriotic in the manner of Steve Bannon, I think that's very dangerous. So what we should do is to fight for the interpretation of what it is to be an American. And to me that means that without footnote and without reservation, we have to defend minorities that are under attack. But it also means that we have to emphasize what unites us across racial and religious and other lines, rather than what separates us. That yes, we need to acknowledge some of the bad elements of American history, but we also need to be proud of the good elements of American history and the ideals that do still provide the basis on which we together can build an equal multi-ethnic society. Yasha Munk, author of The People vs. Democracy and lecturer on political theory at Harvard University. He's speaking with Janae Cummings. 
You're listening to Profiles from WFIU. I'm going to ask you a bit about social media and the impact it has had and could still have. Less than 10 years ago, it was it was everything. It was bringing in uh, hyper-networked protests and revolts and uh, setting this new path for democracy. And now, post-Russian bots, post-Cambridge Analytica, how can we use social media to our betterment these days? How can we trust it? Yeah, five years ago, everything was good in the world was thanks to social media. Now everything was bad in the world yes. is because of social media. And I think both of those ways of thinking about it are really simple. Right? The way I think about it is that the world of communication we had 25 years ago was in some ways the same as the world of communication we had 200 or 300 years ago, which seems like a weird claim, right? Because you could have CNN broadcasting, picture and sound all around the world, live, right? We lived in a world of what I would call one-to-many communication. So you had a bunch of big TV stations, big radio stations, publishing houses, newspapers, and it took a lot of capital to have those, and the people who had a real voice in society were either the owners of those institutions or people whom they decided to give a platform to. Those bad in certain ways. It kept certain voices marginal. It put perhaps too narrow bounds of what could really be discussed in a serious way in the nation's conversation. But it also had some advantages. It also made it much easier to hold the spread of fake news, for example, yeah. or to keep hateful voices off the airwaves. Now, two things have changed in the last few decades. The first is the arrival of the internet, of websites, which democratized one-to-many communication. Suddenly, you or I could do a website, you know, joeblogs.com, very cheaply. Practically anybody could come to it. But it's still difficult for people to find those websites. Mm-hmm. So it was a big transformation, but a limited one. Well, the second thing that happened was the rise of social media. So suddenly, you know, you make a Twitter account, you make a Facebook account, and that's really the rise of many-to-many communication. What does that mean? That means that anybody within that node can suddenly become a mass transmitter of information. If you're sitting on a United Airlines flight and the guy in front of you is being, as they like to say, re-accommodated, and you're taking a video of this, even if you only have 100 followers on Twitter, if 10% of them and 10% of them and 10% of them retweet it, within an hour or two, millions of people can see this video. Now, what does that do? In dictatorships, that might be good. It might make it much easier to take a viral video of a police mistreating somebody. It might make it easier to point out that the dictator is corrupt. It might make it easier to express different political views. In a democracy, it empowers some of the people we talked about earlier. It empowers the classmates of some of the people who were killed in Parkland, Florida, to have a really important voice in our conversation. It probably helps something like the Me Too movement come about. But obviously, it also makes it easier for fake news to spread, for for people who are full of hate to have a real voice, and for people who are politically extreme to organize with each other. The reason why this has been so toxic is that it comes on top of the other things we've talked about. It's that people are already frustrated about Mm -hmm. the government not delivering for them and the pocketbooks not being great. It's because there's already this fear about cultural change, demographic change, and so on. And you take those three things together and it becomes a very dangerous cocktail. When we have tools that are only as good or as bad as the people who use them, are they still worthy tools? Well, that's true of any tool, right? I mean, there's no tool in the world 
that can only be used for a good sure. purpose. But I think it means that we need to recommit to the project of making people more thoughtful about how we use those tools and changing their minds about things. And that's why I think it's so important to fight for our values, to fight for an inclusive patriotism, but also to fight for a commitment to liberal democracy, to make sure that we do teach civics in high schools, mm -hmm. to make sure that in colleges, yes, we acknowledge what's wrong with our country, but we also explain what's right about our country. That's why those things are important, because you're not going to effectively censor social media. Yeah. You're not going to limit the ways in which people can express themselves. Sure. Neither should we, nor can we. But you can change the minds about what's actually valuable. We talk about fighting for our values, also fighting for our rights. And many people believe that giving rights to one group means you've infringed on the rights of another. What is a right? Because it seems that we don't really understand what that means. <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, it is true that rights can always come to clash with each other. Right? So we think that we have these absolute rights, but there are obviously ways in which they can butt up against each other. They can butt up against each other interpersonally. Right? So I have a right of free movement. Right? Within the United States, I can move in whatever way I want. Right? That's one of the rights that is not exactly specified in those words in the Constitution, but that's something that we yeah. generally acknowledge. Right? The governor can't say, you're not allowed to come to my state, for example. Right? But you also have a right to bodily integrity. Right? right? And if you're standing somewhere, I can't say, I'm just going to keep Moving through you, right, that would be, depending on whatever you know law it is, some form of minor assault or something like that, right? So that's a very straightforward way in which two rights butt up against each other, right? That's also true across different kinds of rights. So that is relatively straightforward. The question is, how do you negotiate some of those hard cases? Now, I think people have very big interest in not being discriminated against, in making sure that they get to participate fully in public life, which is the original motivation for a lot of civil rights legislation, where the idea was that people were so excluded from so many public accommodations that they couldn't fully participate in public mm -hmm. life at all. That, we rightly decided in the 1960s, supersedes, overrides another important right, which is also an important right, which is the right to private association. But I get to say, hey, I can decide whoever I want to dinner and the state doesn't get to tell me who. And I can have a little club, which is just for people who, you know, I think are nice enough to join it. And it's my decision who that is, right? So those two things do clash. And the question is, which do we think is more important? The way to answer that, I think, is about the degree to which people are being discriminated against and mm -hmm. the degree to which they actually are being excluded from public space and how seriously we should take that as a danger. And there are some classes of people were given American history. I think it's very obvious that there is a very deep danger of that. And there's other classes of people where that's not the case. So it's perfectly fine to say, I'm going to exclude people on the basis of their political views from my gathering, right? That's fine because we haven't in that kind of way discriminated against people on the basis of their political views as we have on the basis, for example, of a race. We have covered a lot of topics today and I think... There are times when it's felt very doom and gloom, like where are mm. we going to go? If you could leave us with any kind of positive word about the future of our liberal democracy in the United States, what is it? So sometimes people who hear me talk say that perhaps it's interesting and so on, but it's all a little depressing. So I'm sorry <laughs> if I've left any of you depressed. But, but I'm actually not depressed by this political moment. In a way, I'm inspired, which is to say that when I grew up, I, I fought things, you know, I fought those important political fights. 
course, in favor of things like same-sex marriage, and I thought it mattered that we pass that. But those were also fights with important but limited political stakes, right? We didn't think that our very basic political system was under threat, mm-hmm. that our ability to have things like freedom of speech would be under threat. Now, that's scary and that's worrying and that's saddening, but it's also inspiring because it means that what we do now politically really matters. Unlike the citizens of China or Venezuela or Turkey, we still retain the ability to fight politically for our values. I went to this talk a few months ago by the writer Amos Oz, who said, there's a big fire raging out there in the world. And all we have is sort of a little glass of water. And that can feel disheartening. How, you know, if I'm going to take my glass of water and pour it on that fire, it's not going to make any difference. Yeah, but there's lots of us. There's lots of people listening to this program. There's lots of people we know. And if we all take our little glass of water and pour it on the fire, then together we might be able to put it out. I can't promise you that we'll put it out. I can't promise you there'll be a happy end. But as long as we can work towards that, I think it's our responsibility and in some ways it's our privilege to do that. So let's get to the fight. For those out there who may not know where to start, what would you recommend? Well, I think, you know, if you agree with my analysis today, you'll have a bunch of ideas. You can fight to take money out of politics. You can fight to make sure that we have more equitable economic policies that ensure that we gain something from free trade and capitalism globalization, all of which are good things, but we need to make sure that its fruits actually get distributed in a fair way. You can fight for an inclusive patriotism. You can remind people of our political values and why it is that for all of its flaws, liberal democracy is by far the best political system humanity has ever devised. And if you disagree with me, then you probably have a bunch of your own ideas about what really matters and what to do about that. So there's no excuse (laughs) whether you agree with me or not. I think as long as you see our democracy under threat, there will be things you're thinking about right now that should motivate you to go and, and defend our political system. Yasha, thank you so much for speaking to us today. This was so much fun. Thank you. It was a you. great pleasure. Yasha Munk, scholar and author of The People vs. Democracy, Why Our Freedom is in Danger and How to Save It. He's been speaking with Janae Cummings. I'm Aaron Kane. Thanks for listening. Copies of this and other programs can be obtained by calling 812-855-1357. Information about profiles, including archives of past shows, can be found at our website, wfiu.org. Profiles is a production of WFIU and comes from the studios of Indiana University. The producer is Aaron Kane. The studio engineer and radio audio director is Michael Paskash. The executive producer is John Bailey. Please join us next week for another edition of Profiles. Profiles.